Hey, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you, depending on when you're watching this edition of Hypnosis Week Live. Now, um, I'm sure you know who I am, but if you don't, I'm Alex William Smith by birth, better known to many people as Jonathan Royal, hypnotist, the British bad boy of hypnosis of MagicalGuru.com. That's enough about me. Uh, hypnosis Week, as always, is about the guest, and I'm very lucky this week to be joined by somebody who, who stands out a lot in the world of hypnotherapy and related talking therapies um, and, and modalities, whatever fancy term you want to use, for a few particular reasons. Firstly, he has got a background in neurology. Um, he has a background in the genuine medical arena. I'll let him explain more about that later. Um, he also is much like myself, but with more of a, an academic standing behind him to do so, very outspoken, um, but in a totally honest and justified manner where it's not being outspoken for the sake of it. There's, there's real evidence behind that. And we're definitely going to get into that over the next hour he um is the creator well i'm not sure if it, i'm sure he's the creator uh but he's certainly known for his metaphors of movement trainings and uh techniques and integral eye movement therapy uh he is the author of and i've just had a mental mental breakdown uh memory lapse because i don't really have much in the way of notes but it's a book by andrew t austin <laughs> And something rainbow. He'll tell me. Please welcome to the show, Andrew T. Austin. Hey, the rainbow machine. The rainbow machine. That's it. I, had a, I was nearly there. Although I, I'm impressed that you've remembered all the other stuff. I'm impressed. Thank you. <laughs> hi, hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Well, look, for people who don't know who you are, I was fortunate enough to meet you in person. Crikey. My daughter's 10 now. I've uh, been with my wife 12 years. I had a couple of years gap when I was single. I was with the ex it's certainly over 15 years ago at least it must have, i reckon it must have been the late 90s so i guess yeah i know you very kindly invited me down to your nlp hypnosis meetup group that you were running at the time and i proceeded to spend a couple of hours telling them that hypnosis and nlp is complete and utter cobblers and only works because of placebo belief expectancy and intent and important seeming ritualistic processes i've never seen anyone stand up in front of an audience who are who were devoted believers in whatever that was they had bought into presented with somebody who then basically says at the beginning of their presentation i'm going to take away all of your beliefs and i'm going to basically change your minds about everything contradict everything they've ever been taught in their entire life and win adoring fans by the end of the evening and for years afterwards, people talked about that evening. <laughs> it was it was certainly one that stood out in my memory um, as one of the best practice groups. Because it was a, one of our practice groups we did in Portsmouth yeah. at the hospital. And it was definitely one of the best presentations we had um, throughout that whole time. Thank you. When you kindly invited me to that, Lou, I knew a tiny little bit about you. I'd not really dug the ground and I'd not read all your blogs and stuff, which I do regularly now. Because for a few reasons, number one, they're highly entertaining. As long as you're prepared to have your, well, for some people, it'd be a case of having their uh, preconceived ideas, beliefs, notions, challenged, rocked, overthrown. Um, they make me laugh out loud. Um, I'm sure some people looking at them will gasp and go, um, but the fact is, you, 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 you say things that, 
increasingly I'm noticing you saying things that I, I, I've been saying at events for, you know, for years. Um, but the good thing is that you're doing it from a position. I do it from a position of still going out there doing therapy sessions and doing stage shows and teaching people who are doing well doing that. But you do it from a position of having come from a medical background and also um, having the more conventional academic background as well. Some would argue, therefore, that makes what you say more credible. OK, um, so tell us about your journey that got you to here, because before you got into all this stuff, you you had to go through a process of what drew you into it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I'll try and keep, I'll keep it brief. I've always I've always had this aversion to, especially trainers and NLP trainers, who always begin with my journey. I mean, when we have to hear their whole, oh, long story cut short, I was a nurse working in, in hospitals. Um, I started off in accidents and emergency and cardiac, and then very quickly moved into neurology and neurosurgery. Whilst I'm doing all that, my main interest was more the psychiatric um, personality, emotional side of things, rather than the physical ill health. Mm -hmm. um, and generally, my colleagues, who I was the oddball, wherever I worked, I was the guy that didn't quite fit in and was probably regarded as the oddball or the pain in the ass to the organisation. But the role that I very quickly slipped into was the more mental health stuff that the staff thought, okay, who, <laughs> who's best at dealing with, give them to the weirdo, give them to Austin. So my, it worked perfectly for me because I enjoyed that work so much better. My colleagues preferred working more with the mechanical, physical health side of stuff. So that was that was more the area that, for me, that emerged. Around that time working in hospitals, I got into hypnosis. I was introduced to Ericksonian hypnosis. I started a practice group at the hospital. Some medical students then gave me a copy of Bandler and Grinder's Frogs into Princes. Cool. I was then an NLP convert. Um, started studying NLP and everything I could get my hands on, and it wasn't because it, it was pre-internet days back then. There wasn't the internet; there wasn't even a thing. So the, it was lots of practice groups were emerging around the place, and lots of information exchanging, um, and then basically went into it from there. And then over time, did less of the the, the nursing side of stuff, and then much more into the the therapy side. Um, and where I've ended up is developing my own models, as you say, metaphors of movement and integral eye movement therapy. Um, and here I am today. Excellent. So before we get into the whole what is wrong with the industry and what needs to be brought right, can you tell people who may not have encountered uh, them before a little bit about what metaphors of movement is and a little bit about what integral eye movement therapy is? Yeah, I start off with the, the integral eye movement therapy because that's that's what I did first. Okay. Now, I'd love to say, actually, I probably am incorrect when I say I, I developed and created this. Probably not quite true. I compiled it from bits from everywhere and then brought my own sort of understanding to the work. This is a trauma based model. So this is for when people have been messed up by stuff. Um, we can work with the results of being messed up. It, it had its roots really for me originally in EMDR. So what I recognized was EMDR was a very good model, works for trauma, doesn't work for everybody. I wanted to find out why does it not work for those people, but it was working for those people. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to see what the differences were between the two groups. Then what can I develop based on what we understand into with, with the eye movement work 
to make it work for that group of people for whom it's not effective. And that's how it began. And that was way back in the 90s when I was still working at the hospital. And then along the way, of course, I learned all sorts of other things from different people. Major influences, Stephen Connie Ray, Andreas's work, Eye Movement Integration, um, David Grove's work um, and the developments from that of clean language. Lucas Dirks's work also has had an influence more recently in that. So there's lots of different areas that have come together to produce this body of work. Mm -hmm. As I was developing that further, I got much more into the metaphor stuff. And around about that time of the development, I met with a guy called Charles Faulkner. Uh, many people will know him from uh, the NLP world. Um, spent some time with Charles, booked him also for my practice group, um, was bamboozled by the stuff he was telling me. And it was like, OK, this is a different language. This is there is something here I don't know anything about. I was completely baffled. I then embarked on a, a project to understand what Charles had taught me. And then the metaphor stuff comes out. Best way I can describe the metaphors work, we're working with subconscious mental representation that is expressed linguistically. The person doesn't know they're saying it. And so it gives us a way of basically bypassing conscious hemisphere, getting in directly to subconscious, follows perfectly the patterns of hypnosis, but without it obviously being hypnosis. Can I suggest, uh, right, the, the, that for some people watching, obviously, if they've not read the book I'm about to mention, then... That won't be much out to them either till they read it. But um, it, Louise Hayes, You Can Heal Your Life, at the back it's got a kind of like, this is a physical condition or an illness, and this is what may, may, she doesn't say guarantee, may have caused it in real life. And this is the kind of thing people may say. Now, uh, so for example, um, oh, he's the right, not, they might have a neck pain, but because somebody close to them is a pain in the neck. Yes. Um, type thing. Is it along those kind of lines? Kind of. I've just, I've just got to give a little story about the Louise L. Hayes stuff. Okay. Um, I was always quite dismissive of that kind of expressed manifest metaphor, where, where we embody the metaphor and our, our expression, our verbal expression of the idiom is an expression of what we have embodied. Now, I'd, I'd always dismissed that. Now, I had a, I picked up a chest infection that gave me a, a long-term cough and God, this cough, it went on for months and I'd been in and out of hospital and had all lots of different tests done and all sorts of different medications. I went to present at an NLP practice group. The co-host of the group was a Louise L. Hay practitioner. Oh, now okay. she heard my cough and she came up to me and says, I'm a Louise L. Hay practitioner. I went, uh oh, get, get back, get back. And she says, you seem to have something you want to get off your chest. And do you know what? In that instant, in that exact instant, I knew I did. Yeah. And it was something I had to deal with back home. And I dealt with it as soon as I got home and my cough was gone instantly. And I thought, now that, that is really telling. That, 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 I, there's the only personal example I have. But I also, I had a friend and colleague who always turned her blind, a blind eye to her other half's adulterous behavior. Uh-huh. And, and that was the expression she always used. I turned a blind eye to it. And literally, literally, she went blind in one eye. Um, and after her divorce, the, the sight recovered and came back. And it was a physiological condition. This was a rare macro, macro whatever it's called, degeneration. And she's largely got the sight back as a result now. And I find, so I find those things fascinating. But that's not the metaphors of movement work. 
There's <laughs> huge overlaps and parallels, but they're not quite the same thing. So what we're doing in the metaphors of movement, we're listening for idiomatic communication, very similar to the pain in the neck. Um, the uphill struggle, I've put my foot in it, um, I feel held back, and so on. Mm-hmm. And then we basically then elicit the metaphor from that position. Big parallels with the clean language work. Um, there's, there's a significant overlap um, with a lot of the areas that we're investigating and working with. And you may be famil- familiar with Mike Mandel. Yeah. Uh, I've only recently come across Mike's work. He also has strayed into exactly the same domain that, that we're doing with the metaphors, but come at it from a very different position. And so his work also is fascinating to me. Um, he's looking at the same domain. So people express things idiomatically. Um, if you draw conscious attention to it, they will often say, no, just a figure of speech. Don't mean that. But with a model, as in the metaphors of movement work or Mandel's work or clean language, we can elicit out further data and then explore that domain. People's metaphors are largely a map for how they view the world. So if I see life as a struggle, then yeah. most of my, my behaviors will be of a, of a struggle. Life is a fight for survival. Um, life is one great big endless adventure. Life is an opportunity. These big scale metaphors largely define the meta programs and all the rest that people then deliver in their interactions with the universe. So by listening to these idioms, we can start to map out people's strategies, people's behaviors, and also make predictions for how they will behave in certain contexts. So that's it in a nutshell. It takes, unfortunately, it takes four days to explain the whole thing, hence the training course. Um, but that's sort of my, my briefest summary of that I can, I can give it. Okay, so I mean, so, the, so yeah, so the equal titsy relation to the Louise Hay thing I mentioned, but also massive differences as well. There's, yeah, I think there, there's, there's compatibility for sure, but they're looking at different domains of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was a bit of a convert to the Louise L. Hay work um, from being dismissive of it um, because I thought, yeah, I know people can think themselves ill. People do that all the time. Yeah. Um, I think thinking oneself well is very difficult to achieve. Um, and an awful lot of people who are working in those. Well, let me jump right in there. You say thinking yourself well is difficult to achieve, but I, I would say actually it's probably one of the easiest things if it's done in a manner where you're not consciously trying to make it happen, e.g. the placebo effect. Right. Okay. Yeah, good point. Uh, You know, because done right or used right, the placebo effect is not generally giving you room to overanalyze it it's just happening you might think it's because of a chemical drug but in truth it's really just your state of mind and positivity one of the things about placebo as well is that often it's used as a way of dismissing um an effect oh it's just placebo Mm. i mean just placebo that's huge (laughs) but the fact that that does happen um is is kind of is really interesting um, but I think it's something that's definitely also worth researching more on in terms of what we can actually p- achieve with placebo um, to enhance everything that we're doing. Because we, I think we have two things that can happen. There is just placebo and there are techniques that do actually work. What would happen if we added the placebo to the technique that actually works and vice versa? And then we've got something interesting. Uh, yeah. And I 
I genuinely believe that um, I don't know a few people, but hey, it's my show, so I'm going to plug myself just for once. In recent years, what I've been teaching people therapy-wise is still the same as I said all those years ago. It's placebo intent, this, that, the other. But the key thing is, like you said, placebo isn't a bad thing. Sometimes people either hear the word and go, oh, he's dismissing the value of that or no. If the process, important seeming ritualistic process, works and gets a result for the client, even if it is only due to placebo, they get the end result and their life change for the better, great. But a lot of therapists, I think, are therefore put off from perhaps accepting that it might just be placebo and therefore uh, miss the opportunity to harness the positive power of the placebo by taking a technique that may, whatever it may be, that may have some proven scientific basis to it, but then presenting it with more of a confident, authoritative manner or um, adding a little bit of extra ritual and theatrics to it so that, or maybe a more pleasant bedside manner in a doctor's, yeah. so that it amplifies the power of it. I've got a, I've got a, a personal example of that as well. And that was Excellent. from when I worked in, in the hospital. In the neurosurgical department, you've got to be careful when you give people opiates because you don't want to change people's consciousness when you're trying to measure consciousness as a result of brain surgery. Yeah. So, so, so one of the drugs we used to give is DF118. So it's a dihydrocodone injection. Now, as injections go, it, it wasn't a very nice one. It would sting quite a lot. And we all thought that DF118 was the strongest painkiller that is possible to get that's not an opiate. And because it also hurt quite a lot, there has a degree of theatrics to it. So you got to inject it into somebody. You think, oh, God, that's going to hurt, blah, blah, blah. And it was incredibly effective for us. And then the research was done. And the, the way they measured the efficacy of different analgesics, they discovered that DF118 was actually one of the most useless painkillers known to man and that it was less effective than paracetamol. So now what happened is DF118 has now been withdrawn from an intramuscular injection and been replaced with paracetamol, which is clinically proven to be more effective. But who thinks that taking a couple of paracetamol for brain surgery pain, uh, when they've drilled holes through your skull, is going to be adequate? Doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't, but actually clinically it does. We know, it, we know yeah. it's more effective. But because of the lack of theatrics, because you just take here, two tablets and a glass of water, it's not quite the same as putting on the gloves, drawing up the drug, and then getting the needle, and then the pain. Because we've taken that away, now we have to look at have we benefited anybody by clinical evidence? Um, and that actually are people now suffering more pain as a consequence of effective research that proved they should have less pain. And paracetamol I think that's more you just mentioned, more. wasn't it? Was it paracetamol you just mentioned? Yeah. Uh, no, I think it was anodine, the slogan, wasn't it? The, the, the most honest advertising slogan ever. Anodine. Nothing, uh, nothing works better than anodine. And they're actually telling you that the placebo is so powerful. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, so, right, why, other than you being of a curious mind, why were you prompted to develop these models and approaches? Um, oh, hang on. Yeah, well, yeah, integral eye movement and met metaphors. Why, why the need when there was already so much 
Uh, well, there's, um, I've got a number. There was a number of things happening simultaneously. One is um, my unprecedented levels of anger and contempt for the profession in which I am a member, because the quad, the standards. Oh, I start ranting now. The standards of therapy are so bad. You only have to be one percent better than average, and you're a borderline genius as far as anyone's concerned, because the standards are so astonishingly and breathtakingly poor. Um, and I am consistently finding that. Now, not everybody, I'm not, I can't tie everyone with the same brush, but the majority of people working in the therapeutic mind field um, are pretty poor as practitioners go. So there was that one. I had my own problems that I needed to do something about. I simply wasn't finding the techniques I was attempting to use to be helpful for sorting out my own stuff. Okay. Um, plus, um, it's one of the few things I was good at. And that's and, and enjoy doing. Working in the hospital was a fantastic environment to work in. I worked with amazing people, but it just wasn't for me. Um, and I think that leaked out in a daily on a daily basis when I was working with colleagues. You're like, get away from me, get away. Um, so it was both. It had personal rewards in working in that field, a frustration about the the lack of efficacy of a lot of the techniques and stuff like that, um, and also desperately wanting things to be better because I saw the consequences of, a poor, of poor mental health care. I saw it in psychiatry where all that happens is horribly distressed and confused people get locked up with dozens of other horribly distressed and confused people and are just simply drugged. And that was it. That, that pretty much was the, the care they got. Okay, they got fed and watered, but that was it. There was no change work delivered for these people. It was just supportive care, which usually just involved drugging. In the non-psychiatric end of stuff, it was just people empathizing. Well, so what? We can empathize till the cows come home. It doesn't change anything for people. Uh, we're not inspiring people to be different. We're not helping people transform and make different decisions for their lives. So there was a lot of, lot of those things all coming together. Um, plus, I needed something to do, um, and so <laughs> that was it. I think my one of my frustrations about therapists is they're usually trying to fulfil their own needs more so than the clients. That the they they I see these things on Facebook that people write. Oh, another day at the office. I'm going to play, and they, they make jokes about working with these other people. They they talk about living the dream, their six-figure incomes, and how they build a six-figure practice. Yeah, by exploiting financially poor people with mental health problems, and and they then boast like, "Hey, I've got big status." That's the kind of stuff that motivated me. <laughs> I basically yeah. had to do something better. There and and there's definitely an element of that goes on. But I mean, a lot of therapists that are making decent money. I would argue, are not in the main making it from dealing with what would get categorised as mental health stuff. Well, I also the think real, the real money's in dieting, uh, smoking, phobias, sex-related or enhancement stuff. That's where the real money is. Certainly on a internet marketing, selling downloads, books, videos. That's where the real money is. And yeah, I know top end we're getting into the mental health realms, but the main people that are buying books, courses like that, they're just the average 
John the stream. Recreational. With yeah. workshop and training events, there's, there's a significant amount of people that are going to events as a recreational pursuit. So they're not necessarily going. Like it's entertaining. They, people people do recreational education on, on training events. And also they feel special. The part of that special group, yeah. you know, the magic language that no one else knows. Oh, oh God. But I think the other one, the other thing that I did, a lot of these six-figure guys and the people who are living the dream and all the rest of it, well, over the years, I've seen a number of those people as clients myself because when it all goes to shit and then their their narcissism catches up on them um, and everything is falling apart, I then, I then hear the reality behind the dream that they themselves have been promoting. A lot of these also, the, the six-figure guys, I've got copies of their accounts because they incorporate as a company in the UK, those all of those accounts are published publicly. You've just got to pay a small fee to company's house, and you can see the lot. You can see them completely free of charge, actually. Fantastic. If you if you, if you type in the name of the company, the limited company, and then next to it you put um, B E T A beta, and then the word company's house. There's some beta version of the site, and it allows you to look at the PDFs of all the accounts filed free of charge. Now, I'm going to encourage anyone watching this to look for well, their six-figure gurus and all the rest of it mm-hmm. to go into exactly that um, and have a look at people's accounts and just see how well people are actually doing compared to the dream that they're... they're I'm not going to mention names, but it's amazing how little um, perceived millionaire television life coaches or hypnotists um, actually appear to have bought through their limited company. Now, I'm not saying there's anything dodgy going on there. I'm not saying that they're not earning as much as they make out because it could be that they've chosen that over here, this element of their business is a limited company and over here uh, they have elements that are set up as a different company as a sole trader. Uh, I do know some people who do do that, but they are in the minority by far. It's certainly an eye-opening exercise. Mm. It's... um, and also assets is great because with a company you've got certain you're afforded certain rights that you're not as a sole trader. A sole trader, for example, can claim if they're using a room in their house as an office, can claim a percentage, a pre-agreed percentage of gas and electric. Mm. Only a percentage relevant to that room and its usage, for example. Um, in some circumstances, you may be able to negotiate. Uh, an agreement for a a small percentage related to your mortgage for rent of that room. However, as a limited company, you can effectively, there are accountancy tricks that are completely legal that would enable you to purchase a property for the company. So the company is paying the sole mortgage on that, say, from the money that's coming in. Um, but you end up having the benefit of living there for the most ridiculously small peppercorn rent as an individual. So the company pays you your wage that's declared and your pep- you pay a peppercorn rent to the company to live in there, um, which is justified because a large amount of the time this grandiose big property gets used for filming television interviews and TV shows, for example. Um, I'm, not, I'm not thinking of any particular people here or anything. Um, so any any coincidental relation to company's house accounts that you may look at, 
based on UK television hypnotists or, or, or life coaches or, or mind therapists is, of course, purely coincidental. Um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, there's number one. They're quite often it pictures not as it appears. What other things? I, I, I've read your blog. What other things niggle you? I'll, I'll throw one at you. Got a new course happening next week with the latest, greatest. This works with 100% of the people. It's the most effective technique ever for four beers, or it's the most effective technique ever for this. Now, personally, my view is there's nothing on this planet that's ever going to work 100% of the time with 100% of the people. What's your view? Well, it's not 100%. It's often it's 97.7%. That's a favorite. They like to make it so high, but just put a little bit of a doubt in there. Here's the thing. How much new stuff is there that we can keep inventing? I mean, obviously, I'm guilty of that. I've invented models and stuff. But how do they know it works? What are the, claim, the claims people are making? How, how have they tested it? What is their long-term follow-up? Um, are they able to demonstrate the work? One of the one of the, the the things I have with therapists generally is they do, they make claims and people are just going about their day so they work one thing but when people make big claims we need big evidence yeah. and what we don't see is those individuals are demonstrating their work on video for other people to scrutinise and evaluate. Now, I've, I've often over the years have asked people, OK, why aren't you demonstrating this technique? You claim you can teach people to read minds like Darren Brown, for example. OK, fantastic. You possibly can. Let's see you doing it. Yeah. And then let's see those people that have paid a small fortune to come on the training course. Let's see them demonstrating it, too, because if you're able to do that, you, you know, reading minds, not by a magic trick, not by a dual reality type thing. No, no, no by using eye movements or whatever it is they're looking for let's see demonstrations of that evidence is true and they never provide it what they do is get very angry and very defensive and then go on the attack and i just throw in there randomly if you want to get the closest you possibly can to real mind reading get the body language training videos by robert phipps the british television body language guy because he does demonstrate and then get people to use the techniques uh, how to use ISSing cues properly. And I say properly because what they teach you in NLP is bullshit. And that's what, because you mentioned it, that's why I suddenly stopped. Because they say in NLP generally, this direction means that, this means that, this means that, this means that, and all that cobblers. As Robert Phipps correctly pointed out at his training event years ago and still does, that's complete and utter cobblers. And the only way to know is to actually find some stuff about somebody you know to genuinely be true, somehow bring it up in conversation so you can see how they react, calibrate as it gets cold, and then randomly misstate something that you know to be incorrect. So they've got to correct you, but also it's going to access the other way. And you've got to calibrate each individual person because no two people are the same is what Robert Phipps says, and he shows you then how to do it. And as long as you do that, then, yeah, pretty reliably, you can do the kind of things that you see Darren Brown do without the sleight of hand trickery. But it also takes a damn sight longer to do it as close to being real as you can than it does if you're using sleight of hand trickery. 
Or you can just pretend and disregard all negative feedback that's, that contradicts, which is what we tend to see happen. If, yeah. you question, if you question the reality that the trainer or the person making the claims is making, there is a way of dismissing or reframing that to basically, how dare you ask that question? You're only asking that question because, and let me now tell you all about you but they never actually get to answer the question. And I think this, this is a, I'd like to see more of this. When I've asked people, okay, let's see some video demonstration of this work. So basically people can see this and, and, and let's open it up for debate. Mm-hmm. Because if you are claiming to be bettering humanity by saving people from suffering and pain, then why not actually make this accessible to people? Or have they got to pay a big fee to come and actually find out without even getting a hint of what they're going to get, mm. which is usually the case. If we actually have to see these videos, we could see. But here's what they say. Ah, confidentiality. And then I find that people then say things like, so how do you how do you protect the confidentiality of your client demonstrations? Because I've put over the years, I think I've probably made about 20 to 30 client demonstration videos that have gone public in varying, varying forms. There's still a number, number of them online. Um, and I tend to remove them when it's no longer appropriate because that person's life has moved on. They may now actually be known. Uh, they may have gone into the coaching field themselves and so forth. So then that's when I then withdraw them. But people say the confidentiality issue. And I say, yeah, yeah, I have to use hidden cameras. Is the only way I can get the fact that you don't use hidden cameras. Of course I bloody don't. It got prof- it's in a professional studio with lighting and you can see the bloody lapel microphone. But they will use confidentiality as a way of self-protection so they can continue to make the claims but never be subjected to scrutiny or evaluation. And here's what I've noticed. The people that allow their work to be scrutinised are usually the people who are make the lowest level of claim and are least critical and narcissistic. The truth, the narcissists out there, the bully boys who like to ridicule and criticize people unfairly so and shout down anyone that questions them, you'll never see the evidence of their work. Never. I've just, just sat listening to that and thinking, oh, shit, that was me in the narcissistic camp. But <laughs> the, 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 the one saving grace is that I do every live training I do, um, I either get people up who are there, everyone who comes knows it's going to be filmed and they know in advance that it is going to be made public but on sale or maybe bits given away free on YouTube, as I often do, um, and simply don't come if they don't agree to it. So that's step one, the confidentiality bit covered. Don't matter. Just, But I quite often will invite people along, members of the public as well, and treat them for free. And ideally stuff that can be gauged there and then as to whether or not it's worked. Um, And it doesn't always 100% of the time work to the degree I would like it to. Yeah. But over the course of a weekend, I'd have more than one person so that if one of them doesn't work, at least a couple will so that I don't lose all credibility. But the fact is that you've just got to accept the fact that nothing works 100% of the time with 100% of the people. I, for the first, I think, four years that I was, I, I, I teach over in Boulder on a, on a fair, each year. And mm-hmm. every year I always think this will be the last. I can't believe I'm going to have more people next year. This would got to be the last time I ever do this. And I've been teaching over in Boulder in Colorado, um, hosted by Stephen Conny Ray, for, for quite a few years now. 
and again, I'm still amazed that that every year for those go back. For the first four, maybe five years, I don't think in because the courses are quite long; they're either four or, or six days sometimes. I don't think I ever did a demonstration that worked. And I would keep going with this, and they would bring in members of the public, they would, and, and it was like, oh yeah, bring me another client so I can completely fail to help them in front of an audience. <laughs> but what what caught my attention here was, because the first few, oh my God, how embarrassing is this? I'm in front of my peers as well. <laughs> but the, the group, the, the training group, thought it was fantastic, simply because it's a lot more honest, and I think... It takes the pressure off people because our modern day post NLP therapists in whatever discipline they're in, they feel under pressure to get a result every single time and within a single session and preferably within a few minutes. Um, and of course, they get the impression that all the, the great trainers and all the rest of it are doing the same thing. Of course, they're not. Um, they get lucky sometimes and hopefully there's a camera pointed at it or they're on the stage when they're doing it so often those big name trainers are not working with genuine clients they're members of the audience who they have got to know over repeated training courses um or their their plants um how do i know that because i've worked behind the scenes of enough training courses to know how these things are done yeah i'm not um, going to mention names because one of the people yeah, it was particularly uh, litigation happy i've got enough people hate me already i'm <laughs> Um, but I, I'm aware somebody who are who came on my complete mind therapy is just a title uh, course uh, a number of years back related to me um, a story which I have no reason to disbelieve mainly due to the fact because I actually watched the edition of the Ruby Wax show on BBC Two where I spotted this person who came on my course be plucked from the audience um and cured of their issue rapidly during the course of the ruby wax show by well if people go searching now they're going to find out it's paul mckenna so i may as well say it because the ruby wax show <laughs> cure with the therapist uh when it was called the ruby wax show on bbc two in the afternoon there was only paul mckenna appeared on it doing that and the individual that was pulled up, apparently no pre-show work done, had genuinely been cured by McKenna, but weeks or months earlier at an NLP training in London. So had then either A, and this bit is debatable, but either A was acting the part for the TV show, so it'd be guaranteed win, or B... And I think this is probably what happened based on what was related to me, but I can't guarantee this, so possibly allegedly. I had it briefly reinstalled um, so that the genuine emotions were elicited and it looked good for telly, but with the knowledge that it would be as easy as a click of the fingers to disappear. And this goes on a lot with the big names. I think it goes on a lot with little names too. I don't think it's just the big names. This is, I think here's, here's what people coming into the therapy world, they want to be a practitioner of something, what, any of the alphabet therapies. They want to be a hypnotherapist or an ABC, EFT, whatever it is, that any of those alphabet yeah. therapies. People have this impression that there's a huge number of clients waiting for them to, to, to be seen. 
and they're not they're missing the fact that every year i mean how many thousand people in the uk get a nice shiny wet certificate from whatever therapeutic discipline they have just trained in there must be thousands i can remember in the 90s aromatherapy was the big thing do you remember when that was the everyone wanted to be an aromatherapist yeah. Um, and that was hugely popular. But of course, no one actually wanted aromatherapy. <laughs> Everyone wanted to be aromatherapist living the dream, but no one wanted aromatherapy, like life, life coaching. Who actually has life coaching? Well, other life coaches who are training to be a life coach. And so we have this never ending, never ending pyramid. The websites go up and people often will spend quite a lot of money to put the websites up um, and they pay you know, a year or two or three in advance to have it but they never make a living from it and they go back to their day jobs, mm. but the websites all stay up so and they're all on its own is not enough. You can have the best website on the planet. But yeah, yeah, hang on. They're all preaching success and this and that and make no one puts up. Well, I'm an average therapist. I've just qualified. I'm charging a low fee to try and get people in. And to be honest, I'm only, I've only seen three or four people in the last year. People don't write that. People write the great big success stories. So you the internet starting is, out did that. It wouldn't work if everybody did it. But if one brave soul in one area did that, then obviously it'd no longer be true after maybe six months or so right. when it's in shed loads of clients. Um, but in terms of getting started, it would probably actually work in a strange manner. They could have that for local media publicity, couldn't they? But the internet is a graveyard of failed success stories, but no one knows they've failed because the, the failure bit never gets broadcast. And so new people coming in are just seeing this ocean of success stories. And they, they then have this impression that that's what it is. And they themselves start repeating the lie. And everyone is telling the lie of success when actually we've got a question whether that success is really happening at the scale that it appears to be. I don't think it is. Um, in fact, I know it's not. No, and that is why to the best of my knowledge, if you're aware of anyone, please do tell me. But that is for, for one of those reasons alone, because one of the key things they don't ever get taught on these courses generally, or if they do, it's taught very badly because the people teaching them don't want don't want to create potential competition for themselves. Um, is they don't get taught effective marketing, advertising, publicity, and promotion techniques. How to run a business. Yes. And without running a business, you could be the best therapist on the planet, but you're not going to get clients, are you? Which is why I say when people join my boot camp, which albeit is only online, but we also do Skype stuff like this as well, that from the moment of them joining, it's a condition of joining. They get membership for life if they want to stay in for life, but that for 12 months they do as instructed in the boot camp. And as long as they do as instructed, they will make at least £12,000 sterling more bottom line profit, not turnover, bottom line profit from their therapy business than they did in the 12 months previous to joining. Otherwise, they get every penny of the money back. As clear cut as that. And as far as I'm aware, there's no other trainer out there, certainly not in hypnotherapy, who's got the balls to offer money back guarantee. Because they're not teaching and marketing. Yeah. And it is an issue. And I think a lot of people are quite naive to it. They, most people, most going to therapy world, they are basically nice people who want to, I hate to say it, get paid for sitting around having conversations. Because that's all that therapy is. You're just sitting around talking. And, and somehow, 
And this is the bit that I just find stunning. Talking can be so done so fucking badly, they have to be fully insured. So how can you talk in a way that actually is going to end up just good God, that you've got to be fully insured. They advertise their fully insuredness. Um, And that's all they want to do make them work for a living, make them actually take an effort and actually start doing stuff. God, <laughs> drives me nuts. Drives me nuts. I, get, I can't even begin to tell you how many emails and correspondence I get from people. Why haven't I got anywhere? Eh, you haven't done anything. You're just yeah. sitting around waiting. <laughs> they're not, yeah, exactly. They're not just going to show up the client. But I, I'm of attraction. I'm, I'm trying to attract the stuff to me because I've purified my thoughts and my chakras are aligned and I've got the energies flowing and it should just happen and manifest itself. God. <laughs> that I tell you, there is so much of that. The, the complete absence of any effort on their part is amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It's sad and it's it's ridiculous as well because if you look at the first Law of Attraction books, which effectively were The Master Key by Charles uh, Hanney, um, things like in later years, things like Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill and stuff, they all make it quite clear that intent's all well and good and it is part of it, but you also have to take some form of bloody action as well. It doesn't just happen. Yeah. Those two books, Think and Grow Rich and How to Win Friends and Influence People. How old? How old are those two books? And I tell you, they are. I mean, I think people are a bit embarrassed to walk into the bookshop and go, have you got a copy of How to Win Friends and Influence? (laughs) Because people, I think people think that book's about something else. Um, is actually one of the best business books I think I've ever read. Um, and it, but it was, both those books were written in the period of time before it became an industry. Yeah. When the personal development and the mind stuff and all the all that kind of stuff before that became an industry, and so there's a there's a degree of authenticity into what's what they were written. Now, whether they went on living authentic lives is a different matter, but the 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 stuff written in those books is definitely the stuff. Any, anyone watching this, I say get a copy of those two books. I, I Dale Carnegie wasn't it was one. Who was the Think and Grow Rich guy? Because he wrote quite a few. Napoleon Hill. That's it, Napoleon Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of all then got bought up, and the, well, you can get them on Amazon, so you don't need to go into a bookshop and be embarrassed. Or eBay, you can pick them up often for a penny on eBay. Yeah. No, just sort on lowest price plus shipping, and you get books so cheap on eBay for that. So let me ask you a slightly um, controversial, possibly, um, because I know you've got your own association of integral eye movement therapists. Um, so you're going to differentiate this and this answer is going to be interesting to me. But what about the boys clubs or girls clubs? Call them what you will. Um, you know, you, and I'll fucking say it. National Councils of Hypnotherapy, your hypnotherapy associations, your, all those types of things where they'll... You've got to do a bare minimum of this many hours of training, 150 hours of training or something minimum before you can be one of their approved therapists. And then you can join them and pay this fee every year uh, to be able to say you remember that I've spoke to loads of people in the industry. And there's very few of them, except the ones who end up on the committees, who ever really 
benefit from being a member? Now, it's a good question. Here's here's how I what I think. Mm-hmm. A lot of those organisations, I mean, God, how many are there? Holy shit, there's there's, there's hundreds of them. Yeah. I think what they are are the illusion of authenticity, the illusion of qualification. So people join, say, two or three of these things, and they then get to put it on the website with the logos. And, hey, look at me. I might have only done a weekend course, but I'm a member of all these things, and I've got logos, and I'm fully insured, so yeah. I'm authentic. It's the illusion of qualification and authenticity. Now, so at that level, they they work for the illusion. Here is what I from I've got a number of views on this one. So the first one is no client has ever, ever asked me who I trained with, when I trained, what my qualifications are, if I'm insured. No one has ever asked me those things whatsoever. All they want to know is, can you help me? That's all anyone's ever asked me, or variations on that question. But no one cares about the illusion of qualification. But except therapists and coaches who are in rivalry with each other, all trying to one-up what they see as their competitors. And like, I'm more authentic than you, because I've done more trainings than you have. I've got more logos than you have, and so forth. Now, that said, some of the organizations, and this is what I've tried to create, they do provide a service. And this, I think this is the thing people have to look into. Are you just a member where you get a badge, a certificate, and a logo you can put on your website? Or are is there offered as part of your membership some ongoing professional development support, legal support, framework, and so forth? With, for me, setting up the Association for IMT Practitioners, that was, I mean, I had help. It wasn't just myself. Um, but in setting that up, I, it has been a very, very steep learning curve for me. Because I knew everything it didn't want, I didn't want it to be. I knew everything I, I did not want. People go, yes, I'm fully approved and accredited with the association. But don't want any of that nonsense going on. What I wanted to do was provide a real organization that has a real infrastructure and um, provides re- a real service. So we have all the ongoing um, training programs and all the additional uh, video and webinars and all sorts of other bits and pieces. I think we've achieved that finally, but it's been a steep learning curve and it's been a lot of work. I think a lot of these organizations are just people going, okay, so I'm a therapist, a coach. I've done my qualifications. I've got my certificates. I've paid out tens of thousands of pounds. I'm not getting any work. No one thinks I'm important. I'm not appreciated as the God that I perceive myself to be because I've done this course. I'm going to start up an accreditation body. And the British Board of NLP is my favorite one because that was the one I took down a number of years ago Mm -hmm. um, when essentially I challenged them on the legality of their existence. There is no British Board of NLP. Um, That is a that's a legal term and you have to be approved by government at that level and have an elected board. It didn't exist. So I went on a one man mission to basically dismantle that. They brought a legal case against me to which I pretty much did two things. I pleaded poverty. So you can try and sue me if you want. I haven't got any money, which was true. Um, and the other one is I just carried on doing what I was doing. I then brought a case of fraud against the BBNLP. Mm-hmm. And I then contacted the owner of it then. The previous owners had dumped it. Um, the, the new owner was a little bit naive. He didn't really understand what he got himself into. And I said, OK, this is how this works. At midday tomorrow, I've got a meeting at the police station. And I've got this is the case of fraud I'm bringing against you. Just so you know, you have until lunchtime tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That was the end of that. Now, that happened years ago. You type into Google 
accredited or approved by BBNLP, British Board of NLP. There are hundreds of NLP practitioners saying they're fully approved and accredited by the British Board of NLP that never existed and doesn't exist in any form, even a website, for years. But those people have never updated. And to me, that just shows the level of integrity people have when it comes to these regulation, accreditation and associations. Mm. <sighs> There's more. <laughs> as, a, as a customer, so as a, as a member of the public, as a non-member of these associations, um, and as a content creator, as a developer of programs, um, I've had my work extensively plagiarized by, by a number of different individuals, yes, some of whom haven't just reproduced my work as their own. They've even used my client stories. Um, and one guy, I mean, it was amazing to me. I mean, we, we, I created the Hetherington Award for plagiarism named after one of these plagiarists because it was it, it was really spooky watching him on video talking my words and my stories as his own. It's like, holy shit, he's good. I'll give him that. When I brought um, complaints to the accreditation bodies that various plagiarists are members of and present the data, this is plagiarism. No one did a thing, nothing. One particular body who I shan't name then started counter accusations against me. And one of their ambassadors um, for it then started writing stuff about me online. And all I had done was raise a complaint that one of their approved trainers had completely plagiarized my work. I remember seeing no. all this unfold. Yeah, I remember seeing it all unfold and it, it was just just breathtaking yeah so it just tells me that they as a quality control all of the ones that i interacted with there is no quality control mm. and i've interacted probably about half a dozen and there has been nothing no action whatsoever um most of them just ignored anything um the that one particular one who i was very vocal about publicly um, they eventually did get in contact with me but because i had no choice i was creating such bad publicity for these people but nothing changed. Absolutely nothing changed apart from I found myself subjected to derogatory comments online by their staff. And I just thought that that really tells me everything. Yeah. Save your money, people. Save your money. Yeah. Which is why um, I don't charge people yearly fees. Um, yes, they get to be in the Association of Complete Mind Therapists. Yes, they get to be in the Association of Professional Hypnotherapists and Psychotherapists. And yes, if you're thinking Terence Watts has got the APHP, wrong. Go on MagicalGuru.com, click on where it says Join APHP, and you could discover the, how Terence Watts took my training course, home study course, in 1996 and paid using one of his own personal checks which we have proof of, which is why you can't do me for slander. Um, go and read the story. He's, he's using that, and I may well, yeah, I've been lazy in the past, but his trademark comes up for renewal uh, this year, and I may put the objection in, because I've got proof predating him to the mid-80s, when the guy who actually set it up uh, was using it, and then sold it to me in the early 90s. Um, it goes on everywhere, all levels, stealing and it's right, stuff. isn't it? The, the, the issue, it, there's a lot of stuff around. See, the plagiarism, for me, plagiarism is a is a quite a tricky area 
because it's a it's a fine line between developing something that we've learned and then developing it into something different, better, and whatever else, um, and blatantly ripping something off. And I don't know how where the legal definition is with this. I think the copyright it states the um, well the fact is you can't copyright an idea. Right. You can copyright the words and structure that's written down as a book, for example. Um, or the way it's taught visually, if you've got a video timeline, but there is nothing to stop somebody expressing their opinion on how it may possibly be improved or, or, or really work or whatever, as long as they credit the original source right. and don't use it word for word, action and for action in its entirety. But there's, there's other stuff for me that, that catches my attention. And it's, it's, there's been a couple of embarrassments for myself um, around, around plagiarism, um, where I've screwed up, but not known it until it gets pointed out to me. Okay. So there was one particular, I, I was presenting at a conference over in New York. This was a few years ago. Um, and I was going to do something on metaphors. By the time I was on the flight over, and I, I was already bored of what I was going to present. And I wanted to do something I'd never done before. And on the flight over, I developed a particular model which is now part of the metaphors of movement stuff. And I, I looked at this and I thought, holy shit, I'm really clever. I've, I, I, I mean, I'm impressed with what I've come up with. And I presented it to the group and the group think, that's really cool. And then later on, I presented it on another course. And then I was over in Boulder in Colorado and I presented it there. And in the break, Charles Faulkner was there and he comes up and he said, that's good, that. <laughs> and in the conversation, I learned it was his and he had sent it to me like 10 years before. Oh, now, my, my, initial response, my initial response was, oh, no, no, I, I, I came up with that on the plane. I was on the fly. I, I came up. I checked my email later because I've got the, the archive going back years. There it is. <laughs> there it is. And I replied to it. We even had a conversation about it. And I thought, oh, now that is interesting. Because I genuinely had the experience of coming up with that myself, yeah. and and th it opened up a whole bunch of stuff, both within the accidental plagiarism issue, but also within the hypnosis issue, because a, an idea was seeded that I'd either forgotten or really wasn't paying that much attention to. Yet this brain somehow had absorbed it, and then at some critical moment regurgitated that information back to me. Now, that's kind of interesting thing around, say, just the effect of hypnosis and suggestion and how how ideas can take root, but resurface years later. But the the blatant ripping off of logos and text, I mean, people copy just they just copy and paste web pages. And I, <laughs> I periodically put my websites through that, that plagiarism service. So they just scan the web for who's ripped mm. it off. And it's like, holy shit. There's about another dozen have appeared in the last 12 months I wasn't aware of. Um, and some people are just shameless, utterly shameless about it. Um, they just don't care. Yes. It's all about, and I think there's a narcissistic trait to that behavior as well. Yeah, it's, um, so we time, bloody hell, we've nearly gone through an hour. So I'm going to have to lash the last couple of questions before I get you to plug your website and people can search out your blog and get your books and, and stuff. Because if you think this is outspoken, read the blog. If you think this is outspoken, read the book. Um, if you think this is outspoken, go, go, go and do a course and 
you know, if you've enjoyed this way that Andrew's answering stuff, then you will enjoy the way he teaches stuff as well. Um, that's what these interviews are about, so people can get to know people. But um, two questions to end with. The one that I ask everyone, we'll leave that for last. And just before that, what do you see, unless the dramatic changes take place, what do you see the state of the hypnotherapy, NLP, call it what you will, will being 10 years from now? Do you know what? I think it would just as be, be just as bad in 10 years' time, regardless of what happens. Um, there's a lot of moves to try and regulate hypnosis at, at some government level. Um, there's a lot of, there's, regularly this comes up. But the, the difficulty, of course, is getting a definition of what, what constitutes hypnosis, what doesn't. Mm -hmm. I know they've done it in Israel and certain parts of America. Then you just rename it like Bandler did. That's why right. NLP came about, isn't it? Right. But how? But even the, def, the legal definition itself is going to be quite challenging in terms of what at what point does normal conversation become hypnosis? Yeah. That, that, that's that kind of thing. I think the problem is not so much the problem with the models that are being practiced. The problem is the people. And we have to look at what kind of people get drawn into this field of work. And I think largely there, there are three camps. There are those who are motivated because they themselves have issues. So they often start off as a client or a patient, um, get interested in the work because there's, there's a degree of motivation and then take eventually make a transition across. I, I was pretty much one of those people. You get the people who it's a career move, it's a recreational move, it's something they, they like, they like the idea of it, and they'll, they'll flirt with it. And then you get the attention seeking individuals, you get the, the Munchausen's individuals of which, holy shit, how many people um, operating as trainers and therapists are actually Munchausen's patients, but they, they're just lying through their teeth. Every single thing they claim for themselves is absolute fiction. And people don't check it out. There's so many of those around. There's so many of the narcissists, there's so many of the attention seekers, the glory boys and all the rest of it. Now, often they're actually extremely good. They're, just because somebody is fake doesn't mean they're not very good at what they do. Um, they can actually be very, very good at what they do. They're just lying about the authenticity of what they're doing and have taken on a persona that is entirely invented. Nothing wrong with that in some some instances, but of course it, it carries consequences as people. I think it'll be exactly the same people running the same patterns, the same bullshit, and it will just be the same. It will just have different words, have different labels placed upon it, different images, um, a different cast of characters. Because I think I tend, to, I tend to agree, except I would just add that I think it will become vitally more important. And I think it does on a practically daily basis for people to properly do their research and properly check from multiple different sources uh, any claims that people are making before they part with money with them because it, it, it's become increasingly easy with the internet to create fake apparent success. Whereas if you ask certain specific questions, someone who genuinely is doing what they claim will be able to answer those. And further, they should be able to point you in the direction of independent, easily verified, uh, and proven to no, in no way or shape or form possibly just being created on the internet by that person as a uh, cover story, evidence of truth, reality, and fact. Uh, but as you said before, many will just try and change the subject when things like that occur so 
Yeah, I think one of the other one of the other things I've seen over the years, the the the, the Munchausens, the, 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 they themselves are completely fake. Everything about them, they are living a lifestyle that is completely fraudulent. You see this within the medical profession. You see Munchausens doctors less commonly, more likely go into unqualified work in hospitals. You see it very commonly in the military. So you get these fake, they call them the Waltz or Walter Mitties. You get these fake soldiers and they've never been in the military, but they, they turn up at parades in uniform and all the rest of it. There's a lot of people in therapy doing the same thing. I know of one particular individual um, who we shan't name, who previously was a trainer for the SAS. He's a He was a stuntman, high level karate individual. And then also came out with his own training course. A rapid, I would say a rapid form of treatment. There's other words for rapid, isn't there? Now, he was exposed by the military as basically being another Walt, a complete charlatan, a complete fake. Everything he's ever claimed, all his celebrity contacts, all the rest of it, 100% fake. What damage has that done to his business? Nothing. Nothing. I think he did briefly because for a brief while I noticed the person actually... Uh, pulled dates from their website for courses that were going to take place. I think they just, let, yeah, I think just let, let it die down because the majority of the people may not have been in the circle where that was discussed in social media and may not actually be aware that it was completely and utterly exposed yeah. A, uh, a but he was just life. one. He's just been one of many over the years. I've seen so many of them, and I think people just don't realise. And so you're absolutely right. Getting independent verification that the person—it's bizarre because there's this other thing. Because someone has familiarity through social media, they feel like they know the person. Yeah. They've never really done anything apart from click respective likes to each other and maybe commented on a few posts over a period of, say, five years. But, oh, no, I know him. He's a good bloke. You don't. You never met him. No. <laughs> You've just got a, a sense of familiarity. And I think social media does this thing which gives people this illusion of connection and an illusion of knowing somebody um, where actually they don't know him at all. And the, the fakery in, in this field is breathtaking in terms of the extent. And people don't realize. And I just got to say, on this note, this is the videoing that I'm going to be doing over this year. I'm going to start exposing this, this particular side of the therapy industry, the Munchausen's and um, what's called factitious disorders. And the, just the sheer extent of it that's going on. Um, people have no idea at all. Um, and so I will be revealing that myself over, over really over the next 12 months. Excellent. I look forward to seeing that. So prevention's better than cure. This is nothing I haven't said before, but just for the record, on this interview, I will clearly stay. Uh, I mentioned APHB before. Go and click on magicalguru.com. Oh, professional organisation, a stage hypnotist, association of complete mind therapists, things like cured, complete mind therapy, drug release therapy, all these titles they're just titles they're just friggin names and logos that i give to people and i openly state that i'm just giving you a logo a name and a trading brand as a perceptional tool to get clients the actual fact is what you really learn is just hypnotherapy techniques that uh, go back to mesmer times uh in truth um but i'll teach you in a way that works slightly better in the modern day and the fact is there's no such thing as a legally recognised qualification anywhere in England or the majority of Europe or most places for that matter for hypnotherapy, NLP or related things. Uh, you don't have to be in any special society to be able to get affordable insurance. I can actually get insurance cheaper than some bloody National Council of Hypnotherapy members are getting, which makes a farce of it all. Um, it's all bullshit. There's nothing to stop you just getting a book 
and starting up as a, a lay hypnotherapist without doing a course with anyone, creating your own trading name as long as it's not already in use, uh, creating your own fancy looking logo to attract the clients, as long as you abide by all standard laws of England and Wales or whatever country you're in, in terms of, you know, not making fraudulent claims, not breaking the Cancer Act and all, a whole bunch of other things. So, yeah, Andrew's completely out. There's so much bullshit in this industry, and I've called it out a lot. But really pay attention to when he starts doing these videos because, remember, he's got a medical background. So he can say things from a position of authority other people wouldn't be able to. He's got an academic background. That means he can say things from a certain position of authority other people, including myself, wouldn't be able to do. Um, and, yeah, it just it, it's... That is why I, largely one of the reasons I'm largely hated is because I will turn around and uh, do call out it's bullshit and I'll openly admit it's bollocks. Um, which leads me to my last question, the one I ask everybody. Someone who just knocked on your door, you answer the door, they say, I've read a book and I think I'd like to pursue the talking mind therapy path, whether it's hypnotherapy, Tibetan mind control, your eye movement therapy, doesn't matter what, but they want to go down this path. What three top tips would you give them to guide them on the path to success? And that doesn't necessarily have to mean big financial success. It could just mean being happy inside that they're doing the right thing and doing the best job that they can be doing. I think the, the most important one is gain as much experience as is possible and don't expect overnight success. Um, that's the, the most common. I think that's the common mistake. People think, oh, I'm going to the course now. I can see clients straight away. Um, I think I, I, I took me over 10 years of working insane number of hours before I was getting anywhere in terms of getting recognition and able, you know, even being able to think about giving up the day job. Um, so th that's the one thing. So don't expect to be overnight success and get experience. And I, I recommend getting experience in multiple areas, especially clinical areas. Um, so go and visit places. Go and see what goes on. I, I mean, I connected myself. I connected through like the homeless organizations, um, housing associations, the local probation office, local police station, the poverty lawyers, the ones when you get arrested, they say, do you have a lawyer? We'll sign. So I spoke yeah. to all yeah. of those community organizations. Um, to make sure they knew who I was, but also I need to know when I've got somebody with mental health problems, who, what is the infrastructure of the local community that I can actually bring in to help facilitate that individual? So yeah. my number two is connect with ancillary services outside of the field in which you're working. It is one of the best forms of, of client referrals I've ever come across. Um, plus also it makes you real because they, they themselves have people they want to send places. And my third one is never claim you can help people. I never claim I can help people. What I say to people is, um, I don't know. I can, I, I've worked with this kind of issue that you described before, but you're an individual. I don't know if you're the same as them. We can find out, or I can tell you, so I'll give it my best shot. My experience has been the lesser the claim made, um, the more authentic basically you're able to be. This is different to marketing, say a course or marketing a show or an event. Mm -hmm. If we're looking at doing sort of one-to-one -one client work, then I, I would say lower the claims completely and take the pressure off both parties. Because if the client's coming with high expectation, this must work, and the therapist is like, this must work, well, people aren't really paying attention to what's really going on. So lower expectation and lower 
um, the speed by which, or extend the speed by which things are expected to happen. Um, and actually things happen quicker that way. So they would be, they would be my three. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Would you please tell all the viewers at home, um, your main website link will be underneath this video when it does go live, so people can just click on it, but how they can connect with you, find out about your books, your right, courses, so and all that kind of stuff. So my main site with the blog and all the controversial posts and stuff, that's 23 NL people. So that'll be the first link. Um, and then the other the other two main sites is metaphorsofmovement.com uh, or .co.uk, Metaphors of Movement. Um, there, there's a lot of articles and blog posts and, and examples of how to work with metaphor in the way that, that, that I developed. And then the other one is integraleyemovementtherapy.com. Uh, so if people want to do the training on either of those um, programs, I'm not the only trainer of those programs now. We have other trainers, um, but the courses are on the websites. So it's integral eye movement therapy and metaphors of movement. Um, and there's lots of information on there. There's lots of videos people can look at. Um, Google my name, you'll find me on YouTube. I've got all sorts. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm sure there will be some people at home now whose heads are exploding. Uh, and if you are one of those people, uh, and it's because you've got angry or it's pushed, it's because it's pushed a nerve inside you and you know what you've just heard is the truth. <laughs> Thanks again, Andrew. Thank you so and, much. And, uh, please all click subscribe on the Hypnosis Week channel and we'll see you next week for another interview. Bye for now.